Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 830 on Tuesday, October 24th. I'm Michael Guidry in for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a recent poll by the Democratic Governors Association shows a one-point margin between the candidates in Mississippi's gubernatorial election. Then a cannabis cultivation and distribution company shares the growing pains that come with a developing medical marijuana industry in Mississippi. Plus, a reporter with the Marshall Project discusses his investigations into the state's public defense system. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A new poll on the Mississippi governor's race shows a dem- shows Democratic gubernatorial candidate Brandon Presley just one percentage point behind incumbent Governor Tate Reeves. Among 601 Mississippi voters surveyed between October 19th and 20th, 46 percent said they were planning to vote for Reeves. 45 percent said they were voting for Presley. And among the nearly 10 percent of voters who are undecided, the majority said they have an unfavorable opinion of Tate Reeves. We speak with Tim Jensen, director of public policy polling, about the survey's findings. Heading into the final stretch of the Mississippi governor's race, it really looks like a toss up. We found that Tate Reeves has only a one point lead over Brandon Presley, 46 to 45. Uh, So here in the final stretch, they'll be fighting over that last 10 percent. But it's really looking like it's going to be one of the closest races Mississippi's had in quite a long time. And um, let's talk about how, you know, what your interest is in this race and um, what means you went about uh, conducting this poll, how you got the data that you got. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, we are a Democratic polling company, but our credibility and uh, our ability to get business is pretty dependent on being right. So that doesn't really have any impact on what our numbers end up looking like. It just impacts what clients we work for, as you noted, the Democratic Governors Association in this instance. Uh, We conducted Mississippians through a combination of calls to landlines for people who still have landlines. And then for people who don't have line lines anymore, we contacted them by text message. So 56 percent of the people we talked to by text, 44 percent of the people we talked to on their landlines. Okay, what were some of I mean, obviously, there's, you know, the favor that there's there's the who would you vote for kind of getting a pulse of who voters would vote for. But what were some of the other things you were you were interested in finding out Um when it comes to favorability, when it comes to what Mississippi voters might think about the candidates and the issues that they're running on? Well, I think the big story here really is that obviously Mississippi is generally a Republican state, 
but you have a very unpopular Republican governor. So it's sort of just going to come down to which one of those two things ends up being more important to voters. Only 33 percent of voters in the state have a favorable opinion of Tate Reeves. 51 percent see him negatively. Usually a governor with those kinds of numbers is definitely going to lose reelection. But of course, the reality is that Mississippi is a pretty Republican leaning state. We find Joe Biden with a minus 22 approval rating there. And what's really interesting is when we look at that 10 percent of voters who are still undecided, they are almost all people who dislike Tate Reeves, but also dislike Joe Biden. So it's just going to come down to, for those voters, which thing wins out in the end? Is it more important that they don't like Tate Reeves, so they vote for Brandon Presley? Or is it more important that they don't like Democrats nationally, in which case maybe they vote for Reeves even if they don't like him? Tate Reeves is running as an incumbent, incumbents, uh, at least in the incumbent Republicans, at least in the last two you know, major cycles, did not face this level of, of a challenge. How are how are you able to gauge and what, you know, based on the data you got, this particular Democratic challenger, Brandon Presley, his his likability and his favorability uh, with voters? Because we have not seen, uh, so, especially when a Republican is running for re-election, such strong numbers from a Democratic challenger. Yeah, Brandon Presley is a strong candidate. We find that he has a net plus six favorability rating, 37 percent see him positively, 31 percent negatively. And that might not sound that good, but we're in an age when voters are just so down on politicians that to be in positive territory at all, like Presley, is, is a pretty good thing for him. And when you compare his net favorability to Reeves's, Presley's is 24 points better. Uh, so really, the only reason that Presley doesn't have a clear lead, given how much more well-liked he is than Reeves, is just the general sort of reluctance to vote for Democrats in Mississippi. One thing that I find really interesting about this race is there was actually a very similar one in Kentucky four years ago. That's a state that's actually even more Republican than uh, Mississippi is. They had an unpopular uh, governor running for reelection, Matt Bevan, and it was a very similar situation to this where the race was pretty much tied in the closing stretch. And you could see that most of the people who were undecided were Republican leaning, but they also didn't like Matt Bevan. Enough of those people ended voting, ended up voting Democratic in the end in Kentucky to elect a Democratic governor in Kentucky, even in the state that voted for Donald Trump by over 25 points. So it'll be interesting to see if that history repeats itself in Mississippi. Tim Jensen is director of public policy polling. Coming up. A cannabis cultivation and distribution company shares the growing pains that come with a developing medical marijuana industry in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. Medical marijuana facilities in Mississippi are still adjusting to a developing market and state regulations nearly 10 months after sales began. The number of enrolled patients in the state's program has risen by more than 20,000 since sales began January 26th. Our Mike McEwen speaks with William Chisholm, CEO of the Cannabis Cultivation and Dispensary River Remedy located in Byram. We do everything on site. We're primarily a wholesaler, so we're sold in about 70 dispensaries across the state. Uh, we also have this dispensary here, too. So pretty pretty wide footprint. Feel very good about how uh, we've performed thus far. 
Uh, we were the first to actually ship product out for wholesale uh, in late January, and we were the first company to, to fully complete that, quote, vertical integration because we do cultivation, processing. So we actually launched with vaporizer carts in here in, in February. So we were the first ones to do that. So pretty exciting year. Uh, it obviously feels like it's been a lot longer than about 10 months. You know, there's a saying in cannabis that this industry sort of operates in dog years. There's a lot of reasons why. It evolves very quickly, lots of regulatory changes. It is a new market uh, with a new customer base with a completely different set of regulations, and each state is its own beast in terms of what's allowed, what's not allowed, and how the market operates. So um, it's a very competitive market, but feel good about where we are. Overall, we have a pretty good sense for how big the market is, and the total addressable market in terms of dollars based off of the number of dollars that people spend per month statewide. So the state doesn't publish sales figures all that frequently. They did earlier this year. And uh, we think that the typical cannabis patient uh, spends somewhere between $210 and $250 a month. So you said something about wanting to be a manufacturing company, not like a traditional cannabis company. Mm -hmm. How would... In that vein, how would a traditional cannabis company kind of operate? So it's interesting. When I first got into this industry, I uh, realized very quickly that it's an industry that's characterized by very little institutional memory, that there's not a lot of uh, standard industry practices and not a lot of data to reference, whereas in a traditional industry, you've got pretty established uh, margins at different points. You know, the, the wholesaler gets this, the retailer gets that. It costs you this much to produce something. Uh, in cannabis, it's interesting because if you were an operator 25 years ago, you might know everything about growing weed, but you intentionally never wrote anything down because it was illegal. So now, as you enter into a legal market, the non-traditional market, as they say, uh, it's time to start measuring a lot of that stuff. So the, I guess your question of what does that look like compared to a regular cannabis company, we're all about the data here. We're all about the analytics. We're all about efficiency. Now, we want to honor the, the trailblazers that came before us, and we want to never forget the importance and the seriousness of the plan, how it can really help people. But we want to do that in a way that's efficient. So that means measuring everything, sweating the small stuff. And with that philosophy, we think the big things will take care of themselves. So every day, we're all looking around trying to figure out what can we tighten up? What costs can we cut? Where can we add some additional efficiency? That's the kind of approach we have every single day, and that manifests itself in all kinds of ways. Yeah, I guess I was wondering, you know, culturally, people look at a state in the South, a state like Mississippi, you wouldn't think, you wouldn't think that culturally there'd be some hesitation. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, you're from Mississippi yeah. yourself, so yeah, what's it, your experience? Honestly, very positive reception, and almost all of my encounters, you obviously sometimes encounter some resistance or hesitation from individuals, vendors, politicians. You know, there, there are many counties and cities that have opted out of the program. That was part of the law is that the, the local governments could take a vote and decide whether or not they wanted to participate. There's still plenty of places to operate participate in the state. I mean, there's 70 dispensaries open right now. No, sorry, close to 90 dispensaries open now. Well over 150 licensed throughout the state. They're everywhere. So I think that there's been very widespread adoption and acceptance of this program. I think what we're really pushing for is incremental normalization through good business practices. So we prove that we can follow the rules, uh, we can communicate clearly with the regulators, we can have a safe environment, pays its people well, it's good for the business community, it's good for our employees, 
It's good for our shareholders and ultimately good for everybody here because a lot of tax dollars are generated. So over time, you know, there is, we expect that in sort of, in, you know, incremental normalization over time through breaking down barriers of resistance by just operating a good, clean business. You mentioned about the local governments being able to opt out. I'm from Florida. We had a medical initiative pass in 2018, I think. And a lot of the municipalities um, where I'm from, they all opted out. Yeah. And, and I know that the, the state government in Florida, they kind of encourage that. So I'm wondering, you know, that's a long way of asking kind of how is the state government here in Mississippi? How have they responded to the industry as it's developed in the past 11 months? The original sponsors of the bill, Blackwell and Yancey, have been really strong supporters of the industry, been very happy to have their support and collaboration along the way. The Department of Health was tasked with something that I would deem as nearly impossible, which was get a functioning program off the ground in a matter of months and have it not go completely off the rails. And they accomplished that tremendously well. And we have a really strong dialogue with the regulators, obviously, given our market position and our early our early mover status. But I think the Department of Health and the legislature, by and large, are aligned on supporting the industry. Uh, now, there are obviously some tensions with how the market has developed relative to the original vision. Particularly, there's a, there's a glut of supply. You know, the, they wanted the market to be free market in nature. They wanted to give Mississippians a chance to invest and operate in this industry, which I think was was coming from a good place uh, and ultimately was what allowed us to participate in this industry. What's challenging now is that there's a lot of operators that haven't gotten off the ground yet that have spent a lot of money. All of a sudden, there's a glut of supply. Your economic prospects are just not what they used to be. And this green rush, the gold rush that everyone expected, it's not coming. It never, it never came. And uh, now it's really down to uh, operational efficiencies and other small improvements. So what they're what they're challenged with now is trying to regulate an industry that we'll see many people struggling in from a business side. And I think that there are incremental improvements to the program that they can make uh, that are both reasonable and economically very powerful. Uh, and, and people actually want them from, from, from a patient standpoint. For example, we have a lot of patients come in and say the potency limits are too, too low. You can't get anything over 60% potency in a concentrate or 30% in flour. Now, it's difficult to grow flour over 30% anyway, but what you're making people do is spend more, more money for the same amount of product or smoke more for the same amount of THC, and that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And the other thing that uh, we're really pushing for is increased purchasing limits. You, know, you can come in, and for, for, for most people, 24 units a month is probably sufficient, but for others, uh, people who need much more medication, they might have built up a tolerance, they need a lot more. So those two things uh, would be really, really helpful for the state to address statutorily. You know, that's something that the legislature is going to have to do. But the regulators have been very commercial. Uh, they listen to us. They try to work with us. We actually have had the Mississippi Department of Health and metric representatives out here voluntarily several times, mostly because we're local, but also because they like to come and show people what a compliant operation is all about. And that's something we're really proud of. So overall... We're very pleased with how the state and the regulators have come at this industry and tried to help foster it. Now there's some inevitable challenges, but all the things that I mentioned are universally supported among operators. William Chisholm is CEO of River Remedy, a cannabis cultivation and dispensary business located in Byram. Coming up, our reporter with the Marshall Project in Mississippi discusses his investigations into the state's public defense system. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Autocorrect on MPB Think Radio, helping you correct your auto problems. Our host is Coach Charlie Milton, ASC Certified Master Technician. Let me help save you some money working on your cars. Listen to our podcast, Autocorrect. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. It's been three months since Mississippi Supreme Court directed judges in the state to ensure every criminal defendant has access to a lawyer as they wait to be indicted. But many areas throughout the state are unable to follow those orders. Our Kobe Vance speaks with Caleb Bedelon, a reporter with the Marshall Project in Jackson. He's investigating the state's public defender system and what shortfalls there may be for many jurisdictions throughout the state. Once you're arrested, you're supposed to see a judge within 48 hours. When you see that judge, one thing that judge is supposed to do is determine, can you afford an attorney? If the answer is no, the judge should appoint someone to represent you. Now, that that does happen, uh, at least it's supposed to happen in Mississippi, but what usually will occur is that person will represent you for some amount of time. Maybe it's a couple weeks, maybe it's a month, maybe they file a bond reduction uh, motion on your behalf if you can't afford the original you know, requirement to post bail. Maybe they request what's called a preliminary hearing. But historically, after a little bit of time, that attorney stops representing you because they consider themselves only there for the very earliest part of the case. But in Mississippi, a, a felony, you can't actually be formally prosecuted. You can be arrested and charged, but you can't be formally prosecuted by a district attorney until you've been indicted. I mean, the grand jury returns an indictment against you. It's very similar to the federal system. Well, there's no deadline in Mississippi for an indictment. So you can go through those early phases, you know, first couple court appearances where you had an attorney, then that attorney goes away. And you could be well, – you might still be in jail if you can't afford the bond or you've been held without bond. There's data to show uh, prisoners in Mississippi, county jails, they've not formally been prosecuted, presumed innocent, held months or a year or more just waiting for an indictment. And in many places, not every place, but many places, they've been without legal representation. Advocates and reformers have called this the dead zone. So in your investigation, what have you been finding as the cause for this big gap or delay in representation for so many people that are just sitting in prisons? A lot of it has to do with the number of courts we have and the way you move from one court to another through a felony case and the way that we have very few full-time public defenders in Mississippi. So in Hines County, where the city of Jackson is, our largest largest county, largest city, largest jail in terms of prisoners held, this dead zone does not really occur there. We only have, I think, the numbers of about six or seven counties in Mississippi with full-time public defender offices. That's out of 82 counties. The vast majority use either part-time lawyers or lawyers that are on contract. So when you appear in that early court, a municipal court or what we call in Mississippi a justice court, 
in that court, you're being represented probably by a part-timer who only works for that court and has a law practice of their own, a private practice on the side. So often those courts say, say a municipal court, for example, why should we pay to represent a defendant who has left the municipal court? They're not in the jurisdiction of the municipal court anymore. They're moving to the circuit court. The circuit court will turn around and say, well, they've not formally been indicted yet, so the circuit court doesn't have jurisdiction of the case. So unfortunately, there is a lot of pushing and pulling between different jurisdictions. Because of course, local governments, like like everyone, want to want to save their money, and they don't want to spend their money when they when they don't have to. And no one has told them, you know, you have to spend money on this person. the The Supreme Court has said they've got to be represented, but then the local governments have got to squabble and figure out, unfortunately, who's going to do the representation. And a lot of places, those uh, those debates have not been fully resolved. I know earlier this month we saw the legislature come together and they began to discuss this as well. What were your thoughts listening in on those discussions, and do you think it's going to have any major effects going forward into the upcoming legislative session? One thing that struck me is there's no one really out there saying we have a great public defender system. <laughs> I mean, I just be frank. I mean, you know, there are people that will speak well of the, you know, some of the attorneys who are doing their best in the system. We heard that at that hearing uh, that you just referenced. People will speak well of, uh, of some of our public defenders doing a good job with few resources. But there really is no one either in the local governments or at the state level and certainly out of state who looks at our system and says, we have a good system. There, there seems to be broad agreement that our public defense system doesn't give the public defenders the resources they need and in some cases incentivizes them financially to not work very hard on behalf of, of their poor clients, unfortunately. The problem is figuring out what to do next. There have been various models proposed. Uh, and honestly, these discussions have been going on since the 90s, and the problems that have been articulated have not changed. What people are saying now, like that hearing you referenced, is wrong with our public defender system. People were saying that in the 90s. Problem is, you have a legislature <laughs> who uh, you're trying to ask them to spend money on people who have been accused of crimes, and that, that apparently has, has been something the legislature has been hesitant to do. What effects is this having on the people who are incarcerated in Mississippi who have not been convicted of a crime? They're just waiting for their trial. One really concrete effect on them, people being held unnecessarily in our county jails. And this is something you'll hear from both district attorneys, public defenders, and sheriffs that have some level of agreement about this. When you've got someone being held in jail and they're waiting on an indictment. If they're in jail, then it means either they're being held without bond, and in that case, there's probably nothing an attorney could do in many cases. Either the judge has deemed them ineligible for bond or there's some kind of hold, but often they're being held because the judge has said, okay, you can be free, but you've got to pay this amount of money, and they simply can't afford it. In those cases, 
the judges actually are supposed to be reviewing people who have been held without paying their bond. Like, okay, maybe we need to lower this bond, but if you have an attorney to argue on your behalf, then it becomes more likely you get out of jail, and that is money the county's not paying for that person in jail. If they have any health expenses, you know, the county is picking that up if they're in jail. And if you can get cases resolved faster, even if they're going to plead guilty, getting that case resolved faster, going to the DA saying, hey, let's work out a plea deal instead of waiting a year for an indictment, that, that helps benefit the person because it means they can start serving out their sentence earlier, and it gets them off the bill of the local taxpayer, gets them out of the county jails, which are often overcrowded and uh, have poor conditions. So broad effects on both the defendants and uh, society at large. Caleb Bedillion is with the Marshall Project in Mississippi. Caleb, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here and talk about these important issues with you. Caleb Bedillion is a reporter for the Marshall Project in Jackson. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.